Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good evening. Thank you for coming. I think this has to be the most splendid location we've ever held an editorial intelligence event in. Although I did rather wish I had a, a small boy next to me, as my sons are rather partial to the Imperial War Museum. Uh, I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. These events are part of our EI Club series for our members and those people who are interested in the particular subjects at hand. We do feel, unfortunately, that we were rather prescient in choosing this title back in November. Uh, and... Uh, Thus it has proved. We're incredibly lucky to have the person I'm handing over to any second now chairing. I can't really think of a journalist of her calibre or generation who is better equipped to give us, uh, steer us through both the policy side and the facts of war. She's Bronwyn Maddox, editor of Prospect. She'll introduce her panel uh, just remains for me to say this event is de facto on the record because it's being podcast, so it's a bit late to be shy, but if you are shy, do not put your hand up at the end. If you do put your hand up, please say for the roving mics who you are and um, enjoy is perhaps an in- inappropriate term to use for this subject matter, but uh, you get my drift and Bronwyn, over to you. Julia, thank you very much for that very gracious introduction, and I'm going to repeat it um, in spades for our fantastic panel that we've got here. I'm absolutely delighted to be here this evening. As Julia said when we first talked about this event between Editorial Intelligence and the Imperial War Museum many months ago, um, we were it was against a backdrop of, of people saying, uh, you know, is, is, is Afghanistan going to be the last big British war? Although we had General Sir David Richards saying crisply in the corner, uh, war will always be with us, and no one was really going to contradict him on that. And we have this very provocative title that Julia has devised with um, her colleagues in the, in the museum, War and Affordable Luxury. And, of course, packed into that the questions of whether it is unaffordable, whether it is necessary, perhaps the worst combination of all, that it is necessary and unaffordable. Um, it could not be more topical, uh, British forces, very suddenly, uh, incredibly suddenly, as, as Deborah Haynes, uh, who's just back from Libya, was saying to me just before this, um, incredibly suddenly uh, engaged again in, in an action that very few strategists can claim to have seen coming. Um, so we're going to go uh, uh, along the panel. I'm going to introduce them just before they speak. They're going to speak between, uh, for three, four, maybe five minutes each. And then we'll go on to the next one. And then I'm going to leave a lot of time for questions because the questions at these events are always excellent. We are going to um, be out of here by, I can say, crisply uh, at, at uh, quarter past eight. In full disclosure, I will say I'm a trustee of the, of, of the museum and I'm aware of the... Um, extra burdens, if I can put it that way, uh, that descend um, the minute we go past the witching hour. Though I must say, of all the places where you might have night in the museum fantasies, like that kids' museum, this is probably one of the, one of the most interesting, but we're not going to spend the night in, in the museum, just, just the next hour and a quarter. Right, I'm going to start uh, at my extreme right, 
with Professor Hugh Strawn, who is Professor of History of War at All Souls College at University of Oxford, and he is going to say um, a few things uh, within that, uh, th- those parameters uh, about war and affordable luxury. Hugh. Roman, thank you very much. Um, I thought I'd say a few things about the notion of affordability and a few things about the notion of luxury, uh, if either <laughs> seems uh, commensurate with the use of the word war. First of all, on the issue of affordability, what strikes me forcefully, um, and really it struck me forcefully ever since the invasion of Iraq, is that actually the issue of cost has not been as high in our priorities as we might imagine. Um, at no point were we in this country presented with the possibility that our taxes would be increased or that the economy was in crisis as a consequence of our waging war. Um, and that in itself seems to me quite extraordinary given the length of war uh, or the length of the two wars uh, in which we have recently been engaged and I'll leave Libya out of that equation and also bears stark contrast with the way in which taxation was previously justified Uh, 19th century prime ministers always defended income tax in terms of defence spending rather than in terms of anything else Um, (coughs) the notion The other point I'd make, I think, in relation to affordability is the notion that war is somehow unaffordable is actually, and this is me as a historian, a relatively recent um, invention. Um, War was normally seen as paying for itself. Um, It was a way of gaining somebody else's territory. Um, If you weren't a monarch uh, or the the embodiment of the state, it was a way of uh, getting plunder uh, if you were serving... Um, and indeed, war within Europe probably paid for itself um, in the eyes, for example, of Louis XIV or Napoleon, uh, well into the 19th century as far as Napoleon was concerned, and still can be seen in some quarters as paying for itself. There are certainly people in the world today who are benefiting from the waging of war. This is one of the explanations uh, that Mary Cardlaws used, for example, in order to explain the presence of warlords, uh, that these people have an interest in sustaining war precisely because uh, the way in which they run their economies rests on it. Uh, and by the same token, and taking the analogy of warlords, there are those in the areas of conflict in which we have recently been engaged, Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, who have clearly profited from the war and have an interest in sustaining war precisely because it does generate profit. Um, The costs which we have tended to focus on in the last 10 years in this country, and I realise what I'm saying is extraordinarily insular uh, and doesn't reflect the costs uh, for those who live in the countries where these wars have been taking place, um, which is an entirely different uh, set of Uh, considerations. Uh, The costs which we have been uh, sustaining have been seen not so much in terms of cash, but in terms of casualties. Uh, And that is where the issue of affordability has come in. Again, historic terms, the loss of life, and even the very high numbers of those seriously wounded, uh, triple amputees who are surviving uh, war and so on, uh, even in those cases, uh, the numbers relatively and comparatively are low uh, compared with, for example, the most immediate point of reference used in this country and used by those who visit this museum, which is the two world wars. Um, Those casualties would seem to me to be an acceptable cost if we regarded the war in which they were incurred as legitimate. 
So the, the key question here is the legitimacy of the war in the first place. Um, a lot of work in the United States has gone into saying that casualty aversion is something that concerns politicians but doesn't actually concern the populations of the, of, of, of the countries that are engaged if they think the war is legitimate. Um, and I think what has been particularly pernicious for us, uh, and this is the issue of luxury, is the recurrent use of the phrase in this country that we are waging wars of choice or discretionary wars. War, it seems to me, is something which you can only engage in because it is necessary, because actually there is no other alternative. The difficulty within the United Kingdom, and probably even the difficulty within the United States, is that because wars tend to be expeditionary, they therefore can seem to be discretionary because they are very rarely, in actual fact, matters of national survival. Um, and that issue of apparent choice is what creates an issue uh, of, uh, of legitimacy in the, uh, and therefore the, the question as to whether these wars are wars that are uh, luxuries that we should not engage in. Um, and I would go further on that point and say that the issue of, of uh, whether or not you may engage in these wars or not boils down directly to the issue of moral necessity. If we are engaged, for example, in the war in Libya um, because of the compulsion of uh, humanitarian intervention, the responsibility to protect and so on, then surely, actually, this is not a luxury but a necessity. There is a moral obligation uh, which we ourselves have created to intervene. Um, and that in itself removes the notion uh, that this is a luxury. Uh, the challenge for us is how do we find a framework uh, intellectual framework, a title, a short, snappy title, if you like, which conveys the way in which we now use war, if we believe war still has political utility, but which does not encompass that notion of dis choice or discretion. As Richard Haas in the US has, has said, uh, many wars that begin of wars of necessity, and Afghanistan is a classic case in point, becomes a war of choice, as Afghanistan now seems to have become. Um, and that is partly a product of the war's duration. Uh, my own punter, assuming Brahmin's going to wrap my knuckles in about 30 seconds, or perhaps five seconds, is that we need some title like Limited War, something that encapsulates the notion that there are moments when wars do have political utility, uh, where they are not uh, luxuries and where they are actually necessary. Thank you. You anticipated and then preempted me. Thanks very much, Hugh. There's some, some, um, no, some uh, points which I'm sure you're going to pick up on uh, in, in questions, but about, um, particularly about your definition of necessity, because if you were defining, uh, say, humanitarian intervention as, as, a, as a moral obligation, um, a lot of countries would contest that and say that it is coming very close to kind of uh, self defined holy war or something that we're, we're, we're coming close to an imposition of our own values uh, on others we can come back to this I'm going to turn now to Fatima Bhutto who I last met in, in her house in, uh, uh, in Pakistan uh, and she came up with a, uh, we were talking about the state of Pakistan at that time and she came up with uh, what seemed to be at that point the most brilliant uh, two word uh, piece of political analysis in describing uh, General Musharraf as dictator light. Um, 
which I, I thought was marvellous. I repeated it without attribution to General Musharraf, um, who didn't see it quite that way uh, and preferred something like Pakistan's less, uh, last and best hope. Um, but um, I, I, uh, Fatima is, a, as, you, as you know, a poet, author um, on many subjects, but uh, obviously including uh, her own country. And I want to ask her now simply, how does it seem to you? Oh, well, I might I might pick up on this idea of, of affordability. Um, is the mic okay? Everyone can hear. Uh, it seems that most new wars come tailor made or, or, or package ready with outrage, um, with the notable exception of the cruise missile liberals gunning for <laughs> Libya at the moment. Um, but while we seem to be up to date and up to speed with the human and economic costs of new military adventures. Uh, we seem to be missing uh, the codes with which to properly articulate outrage or criticism when old wars are insidiously expanded, as in the case of Pakistan. So when President Obama decides to begin uh, essentially a drone war against the country, he doesn't amazingly need to go to Congress to justify that decision. He doesn't need to go to meet the press. Um, There was a a report published by the UN uh, last year on targeted killings that found that America is the most prolific uh, user of targeted killings as a weapon of war. And they, they, they counted and came up with the fact that during the eight years of George W. Bush's White House, drone attacks, unmanned predator or reaper drone attacks, were used against sovereign nations a total of 45 times. Whereas in the first year of President Obama's Um, administration alone in 2009, they were used 53 times. In fact, the first drone strike against Pakistan was ordered 72 hours after Barack Obama entered the White House and assumed the presidency. Uh, And though the drone war against Pakistan, which in my mind is Britain's third war and Libya its fourth, started in 2004, they became a, a weekly feature of life towards the end of 2008 and then an almost daily feature by 2009. So last year there were 118 drone strikes against Pakistan and 52 of those strikes were carried out in a 102-day period, so one every other day, um, starting from September, which was the month after Pakistan faced its most devastating natural disaster ever, um, when the floods swept the country and some 20 million people were affected, till December. Uh, at present, we know that some 2,000 Pakistanis have been killed and counting um, as part of this drone uh, campaign, but we'll get, we'll get to that in, in a moment. Um, there are a couple of other things to do with numbers and this idea of affordability or efficiency, at least, that I think are interesting. Um, first of all, you have a permanent state of siege now in Pakistan, and, and it allows a mechanism for killing that simply doesn't distinguish between civilians or what military men call legitimate targets. So daily life becomes militarized. Entire towns, villages, districts, buildings, schools uh, are are considered acceptable targets. And the Brookings Institute um, did another report, and they all have really strange titles, these reports, and this one was called Do Targeted Killings Work? Really earnestly. And it found that that 10 or so civilians are killed for every militant in a drone strike. Uh, or so, I mean, this is, the, this is the mathematics of the drone wars. This is the algebra of targeted killings and, and smart bombs. 
We know also, thanks to the American Civil Liberties Union, that the U.S. military doesn't keep track of the number of civilians killed by drone strikes, which they, they ought to, perhaps, because those seem to be the people they're killing rather inefficiently. And I want to read you just a small thing that um, came out in an account published by the LA Times uh, on a drone strike that killed between uh, 15 to 23 Afghan civilians or so um, in an attack late last year. And this is an account of the, the drone operators. And they're called drone operators now because they're not, they're not pilots anymore. They're drone operators or predator crews or uh, video analysts or camera um, operators. And the, the, these drone operators were sitting in a room in Nevada, obviously miles away from the Afghan civilians they were about to kill. And, and this is a snippet of that conversation. Our screeners are calling 21 military-age males, no females, and two possible children. How copy? This is from the drone operator, the fellow who's about to push the button. And he asks it to uh, another drone operator who's watching another screen in, in this sort of bureaucratically odd Dr. Strangelove kind of setup. Uh, Roger, the voice, replies, And when we say children, are we talking toddlers or teenagers? Um, not toddlers, a third disembodied voice says. Uh, something more towards adolescence or teens. Oh, yeah, adolescence. We're thinking early teens, says the drone operator who then drops the bomb. And in fact, they were children. Um, and it begs the question of how it is militaries can uh, keep track of civilian deaths in wars when they can't even tell the difference when it comes to drone operators between uh, children or teenagers um, military-aged males or civilians, or in fact military-aged males that are civilians. And I'm, I'll wrap up really quickly here with just saying that um, the U.S. defense budget for this year, for 2011, has asked for a 75% increase in funds um, to, to continue drone operations like this one that happened in Afghanistan last year, um, or like the drone attack that just two days ago killed two American soldiers. Um, in what the Pentagon is calling friendly fire. It doesn't really seem like fire if only one side is firing. It's more like friendly, friendly bombing now. Um, or, or, in fact, the drone strike that happened yesterday in uh, northern Pakistan, where two drones fired four missiles to kill six people, who, who's, who we are told are militants, but till now, 24 hours later, we don't have names for, we don't have photographs for, and we, we don't have charge sheets for. It seems like an incredibly inefficient way to fight war. Um, on the human scale. Fatima, thank you. An account of the, the cost of war um, in the country where it is happening. Again, a lot of points we'll come back to. Um, though I hope um, particularly on that, the role of uh, Pakistan's government in, um, uh, in supporting or otherwise the, the drone strikes. I just want to be clear on one point, though. You said in the, uh, uh, in the middle of that, uh, Britain's third war. What point exactly are you saying that Britain is playing in this? Because... Um, Many people see this as an American action, the drone strikes. The drones are an American action, but I think the action taken against Pakistan leaves no doubt that Pakistan is a third front in the war on terror, okay. though we're considered yeah. allies. Let, 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 okay, mm. understood. Thanks. I'm going to turn now to Michael Clark, um, head of RUSI, the um, Royal United Services Institute, the think tank um, which has um, had um, an extraordinary uh, decade um, 
uh, as wars have come ever closer to home, if you like. Um, always an interesting uh, think tank with an extraordinary passage of people uh, from right around the world passing through it. But this is very intense time that Michael has been uh, living um, as uh, uh, headquarters right in the middle of Whitehall have seemed to bring this debate um, right to his, uh, his door uh, and a dazzling series of um, sessions he's, uh, he's brought to it. Um, Michael, how would you address this question? Um, thanks, Bronwyn. I, I address it by uh, taking the liberty of, of um, being uh, structural about it. Uh, because when I think about these topics, I think, well, it gives me a, an opportunity to, to think this through in front of you. One is that the, the term war, that we, as we normally use it these days, is, is getting increasingly meaningless. Uh, we derive the term from a, a conception of warfare from the, the, the old state system of the last 300 years where one state fights another state for something. And that's not irrelevant, but these days the term is really, really very hard to pin down and we live in an era of theme wars, like a war on terror or a war on drugs or a war on crime or a war on illiteracy. And what we mean when we say war is some sort of extraordinary effort. That's what we're, we're, we're referring to. And the, when we think about war, first of all, um, insofar as you can put any definitions on it, um, warfare doesn't seem to be quite the scourge it was in the 20th century, just to give you, you know, a very crude point. In the, the wars of the 20th century, up until 1950, about 110 million people were killed by most calculations, about 110 million. Since 1950, by most calculations, the figure is about 20 to 25 million. Uh, the highest figure is 25 million. That's nothing to be proud of. But um, since 1985, HIV-AIDS has already killed 30 million people, and a lot more people will die of HIV-AIDS in the fairly near future. So uh, it's not that warfare is not, of course, extremely destructive, but it's not the worst thing the world faces. Um, it's not the, the biggest scourge in the world. And one of the problems we have is that because war doesn't have a, a, an easy meaning these days, we're, we're confronted with a sort of spectrum of conflict from violent criminality, and if you live in Colombia or Mexico or even southern Italy, you know what that means. So from violent criminality to, um, uh, to terrorism to uh, counterinsurgency, or sorry, insurgency through to varieties of warfare right up to the prospect of old-fashioned conventional war. We have a sort of spectrum of conflict. And in fact, although the, the 21st century world is safer, a great deal safer than the 20th century was or the 19th century was, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way because it's very disordered. And so although the, the statistically, if you take any live birth in the world over the last 10 years, they have a statistical chance of living a, a, a more peaceful life or not dying a violent death or not being affected by violence a better chance than existed throughout the 20th century or the 19th century but people don't feel safer because of disorder and that's understandable that's the spectrum and so you ask yourself well you know how does the disorder arise and i go back to say i'm taking the liberty here of going back to the the, the, the single best analysis i've ever come across in my career of warfare in 1959 by Kenneth Waltz in a great book called Man, State and War. And he asks the simple question, what causes war? And he said, well, there's three sorts of explanations. One, one, one set of explanations is it's all man. It's something, in, something intrinsic to humankind that makes us violent. And you can either be optimistic or pessimistic about that. Either it won't change or it's capable of being changed. Or a second uh, analysis is, well, it's not mankind, it's the state. It's the fact that we live in states that make us fight against our natural uh, peaceful instincts. And in that respect, the liberal shares exactly the same uh, assumption as the Marxist, that the liberal thinks if only we were more democratic, 
like, like Wilsonian liberalism, like Bush's liberalism, more democracy and democracy in the world will be a more peaceful world. And the Marxists said exactly the same. If we only lived in socialist and then communist societies, the natural interests of people would not allow them to fight each other, so they wouldn't. It's the fact that we live in unrepresentative states that makes us fight. Set of explanations. And of course, the conclusion is neither of these sets of explanations are very satisfactory. We end up with a sort of negative explanation, the, the, the system explanation, is that conflict and wars happen because there isn't enough to stop it. And the system that we live in now is changing so fast, it is so transformative, that this spectrum of disorder is such that we do not have enough in the system to stop it. Um, and so we choose which bits of conflict we get involved in, we choose which types of conflict we regard as war, and we react because, oh, war is extraordinary, we must do something about it. But violence, that's unpleasant. Criminality, yeah, that's pretty unpleasant. Um, but unless we call it war, then we, we deal with it in different ways. So war, I'm not, I'm not trying to wish this issue away, war is highly perceptual. And because we're living in a transformative age, then it, it really isn't clear um, what mechanisms we have even to think clearly about it, let alone to do anything about it. And that, for me, is the, is the analytical point I hold on to when I consider how do we arrive at so many double standards in this world? How do we arrive at such ineffective action on some issues and effective action on others? What accounts for the, the sheer um, volatility, the sheer arbitrariness of the decisions we make? And it's because we, we've stopped understanding the, the concept. Um, so we can't get away from it. And final point is that uh, somebody did some quite, quite good analysis of British defence expenditure over the last 300 years. If you take periods of warfare out of it, like First World War, Second World War, Napoleonic Wars, and you apply pretty strict deflators, uh, albeit with, with some rather large assumptions, it turns out that Britain has been spending about the equivalent of £30 billion a year for the last 300 years on defence. It's about the level that we seem to, to, sit, to settle at. Our natural now, level of war. Our natural level of defence and warfare. Now, there's lots of issues about whether that's accurate or not, but there's an interesting consistency with, what, with the way we in Britain think we should deploy the military outside war. Michael, thank you very much. That was an excellent point. I find it um, I must say, rather bleak um, uh, pitch over, overall, this planet bathed in eternal war and uh, us sitting on the side deciding when we it's stick our toe in. It's for now. It may change. <laughs> oh, great. The optimist. Um, thanks very much. We, no, again, we'll come back to that. I'm going to go now to Deborah Haynes. Um, uh, from a colleague of mine at, at the Times, the defence editor there, who's just back from Libya on Tuesday and has been writing for the Times uh, for many years, um, from Afghanistan, uh, many years, and then based in Iraq before that, before that in Reuters, and um, uh, because of her past even further back than that, speaks fluent Japanese, not itself without considerable use. <laughs> They're not in Libya. Um, I think, uh, <laughs> unless foreign affairs has uh, run faster than I was thinking this week. Um, Deborah, from your point of view, I mean, it, it, I'd love to hear what your, your, your thoughts are coming back from from Libya. But does it feel like, uh, particularly Britain's role there, is something that it just can't afford anymore? Yeah, it's um, it, it was quite funny um, being, I guess, at the sharp end of Britain's latest military venture. Um, uh, yeah, as, as the defence editor, I've spent the last sort of year and a half really um, being very critical, of, uh, being very critical, and also 
questioning of um, Britain's defence budget and how we are able to afford to do anything. And so I was sort of talking to friends back home, you know, about how, well, you know, obviously we can't do much about Libya, can we, because we can't afford it. And then suddenly, um, you know, obviously like 112 missiles landed. Um, so we were all quite surprised because it did happen so fast. I mean, uh, uh, people... Two were, of them British. Two of them, yeah, yeah so it was only puny. But that kind of summed it up, really. It was like, well, we can just about afford it. Um, and, and I guess kind of um, the point that I wanted to make, um, and it's a bit of an idealistic one and not realistic at all, but I figured I'd make it anyway. Um, uh, it's kind of, uh, yeah, as much as it's really uh, good to stand up for, you know, obviously important to stand up for human rights and um, protecting people, um, I, I was kind of looking at the, the, the question that was posed in this debate as about, as about you know, very purely selfish national interests and it's got to be a case that at a time like now when we've got students, you know, hundreds of thousands of students rioting in the, protesting in the street because they can't afford university education, people unemployed, hospitals closing, you know, a, a country and in a real economic crisis, can we really afford to be spending millions of pounds, which is what it's going to cost, which is what it will have cost us so far to be involved in, in Libya? Um, there are lots of people who obviously think that um, the UK and France in particular got drawn into the Libya conflict because of oil. And that's a very compelling argument, especially when you look at countries like Bahrain, um, like what, what's happening in Syria, and you know, you're not hearing clamourings by our government um, to take any action um, in those countries. However, Libya... Um, was a special case and you know very quickly we moved from um, threatening talk to military action um, without the uh, the sort of soft uh, power that is advocated in the national security strategy um, it specifically specifically talks about um, putting extra money it gave extra money to um, um, to DFID, uh, to, to, to sort of build up that, so we don't need to have military intervention. And yet, you know, within months of them publishing this document, um, we're embarking on the very sort of thing that we sought not to. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that was because um, uh, what was happening on the ground in terms of Gaddafi's um, action um, against uh, you know, the rebellion, and it has, you know, it's clearly documented that what's happened has been horrific, that there wasn't time for dialogue and there needed to be military action, but that really begs the question, can we afford it? Um, and, and I guess we've seen, I guess that the danger is, um, we say we need to do these sort of actions, we've done it in Iraq, we've done it in Afghanistan, but we haven't been able to afford to do it properly, and we've seen what's happened in Basra, we saw what happened in Helmand, where the, you know, the British effort wasn't properly funded, and as a result, um, didn't, uh, didn't make the, the, the desired goals weren't met um, by the UK alone, and we had to ask for help. And you know, here in Libya as well, we can't afford to keep um, running these these sorties, um, dropping um, missiles um, at, at the tempo that we are without help. And so, kind of, I was wondering, um, as I was thinking about this issue, um, you know, if in a in a in a, in a multilateral action like this, when you have countries that are uh, that have the cash but not the um, the appetite for military action, and you have countries like ours that have the military capabilities but not the cash, um, maybe there could be some sort of fund or something <laughs> um, that that could be used, you know, a sort of like a UN Security Council resolution fund, uh, and people could sort of put into that, and it could be a combined effort, in which case we wouldn't become skint. Uh. 
Deborah, thank you very much. And you put your finger on, in fact, some of the points raised by the others, but particularly by Hugh at the beginning of whether, say, humanitarian suffering in another country actually uh, uh, may not be national interest, but may, in Hugh's words, be bring so much of a moral obligation that it, it, it amounts to a necessary war, whether, or whether it doesn't seem necessary at all. I'm now going to turn to Rear Admiral Chris Parry. He spent 36 years in the Navy and then became a strategist for uh, all sorts of uh, companies. And um, is, has... Um, I was a strategist while I was in the Navy. I was dazzled by the list of... List of uh, things you had commanded in, in, in the Navy. I would love, you may answer the question, obviously, uh, as you like, but I would particularly like to know what you feel about this question of, of um, when wars are necessary and whether they, that just means the national interest. And I'd also love to know, but you're free to avoid it, uh, whether given that you were in the Falklands, whether you feel that defending the Falklands is now necessary or affordable. Well, I'll just rip up my notes. Okay. Um, thank you very much. I feel very much like a tail gunner, actually. Everybody else has had their shot, and I'm facing the Messerschmitts behind me, but there we go. Um, going back um, a few years, I'm a historian, and I always like to know what happened on the day when I'm speaking. Um, we've got three hours to go till the Titanic hits the iceberg on the 14th of April in 1912. Um, a number of other things. The Soviet Union withdrew its troops from Afghanistan, and to cheers all round, Idi Amin was driven out of um, uh, Uganda by a Tanzanian army-backed military coup. Um, but the most important date in my life, associated with the 14th of April, is 29 years ago, um, I'm passing the equator, going south to the Falklands. And indeed, I, um, I had a few thoughts at, at the time as to what, what I thought about war. Um, now, it's quite interesting, um, because the Falklands was really quite black and white. A, a revolting dictatorship had actually taken over land that belonged to us, um, it had been taken away, and if you're going to go to war against a military junta that everybody hates, it's fantastic actually, because you can feel a great moral superiority about it. Now, let's think about legitimacy. It was British territory, the people themselves didn't want to be Argentinian, and it was an open and shut case. Now, there are two other aspects associated with legitimacy. One is the cause itself, um, but most importantly, uh, the expectations that are aroused um, by military force. Um, and I have to tell you, one of the biggest problems you have as a practitioner is whether you're going to be up to it or not. Because putting on a uniform, flying an aircraft, driving a ship or something like that doesn't give you an exclusive right to say that you can actually do this job or that you'll actually have the bottle when it comes down to it. And it's a tremendous responsibility as a practitioner in the art of warfare, and I use that term very guardedly, um, to actually assume the responsibility for doing things that ordinary citizens shouldn't normally do. And you have to think about it very strongly indeed. Now, why do we have defence forces? The reason we have defence forces is, um, I think Cicero said, and I'm going to quote here, wars are undertaken so we may live in peace and without suffering wrong. Uh, and our classical um, authors are quite good on this. Thucydides said, uh, right as the world goes is only in question between equals in power, while the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Uh, and your defence forces, I like to think in this country, are based on a legitimacy that says you will not have to suffer wrong, you will not have to uh, go in harm's way because your armed forces provide that insurance policy for you. Now, in 1982, I was perfectly comfortable that our government had made the right moral, right political and the right military choice to take back the Falklands. Uh, I have to tell you that those criteria in my career have not always been fulfilled. 
Um, but being British, by and large, I have been able to sit in the comfort of thinking that that has been the case. What I've not been too fond of is the um, temptation to take war out of the uh, realm of Mars and put it into the realm of Venus. If you look outside, most of the things that you see out there are pretty sexy. Um, they look good. And the aesthetic quality of war-making materials, I'm afraid, leads people, particularly those who look at it from a distance, to view it with, shall we say, some vicarious pleasure. Um, I've always thought that people who take uh, an intense pleasure in warfare, uh, who don't actually take part in it, uh, have a sort of pornographic approach to war. Action films, war literature, video games, all these things feed the glamour of war, and they actually take us away from the realities of it. And... Um, I think Edward Gibbon said once about the Emperor Trajan, he said, Trajan was ambitious of fame, and as long as mankind shall continue to bestow more liberal applause on their destroyers than on their benefactors, the thirst of military glory will ever be the vice of the most exalted characters. And somebody who's been in the thick of it uh, sometimes feels that way about politicians and other people who are cheerleaders for war, regardless of its expense and regardless of its consequences. And... Again, Hardy said, war makes rattling, the, rattling good history, but peace makes poor reading. Um, there's no doubt about it. The public feeds its own appetite for warfare and for war, and it will afford what it wants to, I'm afraid, in terms of what it votes for and what it chooses to deal with. Now, it's a simple issue with affordability. Um, if you pay too much for defence... Um, the public gets upset. Of course it does. If you pay too little, your defence becomes incredible and you will sub be subject to all sorts of injustices and insults as you go through your political way. It is up to a democratic government in all cases to provide you with the protection of you and your interests and, I hasten to say, your values. Um, if we don't fight for values as well as interests, we have no right to be a democratic society going to war. Uh, I also have no truck with the sort of people who say the lion should lie down with the lamb. Uh, that normally leads to uh, frequent replacement of the lamb, uh, or if the lamb stays in place, it doesn't get much sleep, I can tell you. Um, um, there are no easy answers to war. It's with us, it's endemic, it's like disease, it's part of our nature. Uh, there will always be wars, and as a futurist, which is one of the jobs I do at the moment, we're heading for a very dangerous period in world's history where we might not go to war, but war may come to us. Um, my final point uh, is um, Oscar Wilde, really. He made what I think is the, the best comment on war. He said, as long as war is regarded as wicked and exciting, it will always have its fascination. When it's looked upon as vulgar, it'll cease to be popular. And I would turn the title of this around because um, your defence forces are all about deterrence. If you are not prepared to go to war, your enemies will know this and will take liberties. And I think the question should be uh, not war an affordable luxury, it's peace an affordable luxury. Because that's the luxury we enjoy today by affording what we have in terms of defence and in terms of political will. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was absolutely superb, and thank you for that, that closing note. Let me just ask you one thing. When you say war may come to us, what, what do you have in mind? 
Um, yeah, it's not the second leg of uh, Manchester United, Chelsea or anything like that. But uh, no, um, we're heading for a very dangerous world. Um, in the next decade, we're facing a, a real confluence of real global pressures, from climate change to um, uh, population increase. We're going to have 9.2 billion people on this planet by 2035. It's 6.8 today. Uh, the resources simply do not match that. And we don't have mature enough systems politically or at the international level to cope with that level of pressure. Um, the last sort of time we had this confluence of global issues without resolution um, was at a time of migrations at the end of the Roman Empire. And, and they failed dismally to deal with that, of course. Um, but, um, hey, we'll give it a go. Thank you very much. Absolutely superb uh, panel. And I'm going to go now to um, questions. I would just say that uh, uh, threading through all of these... Um, including uh, Fatima's account of the drone strikes, is, 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 is at least one question, which is whether a country such as Britain fighting for its values can claim to be acting in a necessary war, or whether that is an imposition of values on another country. We can come back to that. Let's go now to questions. Neil McCartney, I'm chairman of the Independent Film Trust. Um, I'd like to pick up the point that Professor Michael Clark made. He said that today... Um, the life expectancy of a child is greater than it would have been in the 20th century, or the chances of being affected by war are less than they would have been in the 20th century or the 19th century. But people don't feel that way. Now, what I'd like to ask him is, which people does he mean? People in this country, people in the United States, or people in other countries? And wherever he means, how does he know? I mean, has someone done a public opinion survey? I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that one of the reasons why we're we in this country are worried about disorder is because the government keeps telling us <laughs> to be worried about it for reasons that you know we can all guess that can't we? Well, I, you know, I, can, I can mention ID cards I can mention CCTV I can mention detention without trial so I, I just wonder what, he, what his view on that is Alright Michael it's, no yeah, yes, I, I, in an old fashioned way I tend to take questions one at a time because it gets a full answer but as that is a, a precise one to Michael let me him, him answer it, and then let's just see if there's any others. Then we'll go to another one. Yeah. I mean, quick one. When I say people, I'm speaking grossly because of uh, the, we're doing three or four minutes, and it's uh, it's the nature of the of the, the beast. Um, but I mean, how do we know? Yes, we do know in the in the developed world because people are asked on a regular basis, and that's the trend of thinking. That's extrapolated, of course, to uh, people uh, to populations around the world. I'm I am making a gross generalisation, but there is a sense of disorder in the world, and it comes down through the political elites and so on. Uh, which was not the case even in the mid-20th century. And, you know, the old thing is in the 20th, 19th century, um, powerful states competed, and that's what tended to create war. Now it's weakness that creates instability, not power. Mm. Maybe I'll just ask Fatima at this, uh, that, that point. Does it, um, does it feel, if you're in Pakistan, that, that, that there is a new age of disorder or that it has been constant? Um, well... Pakistan is, is fortunate to have had a good 64 years of a bit of disorder. But, but, but this disorder is certainly imposed mm. when you have uh, Richard Holbrook coming to the country when he was with us um, every two weeks to check on how we were doing and to let us know that if we were not towing the line, it meant that we were inherently undemocratic or other uh, and not behaving well. Um, that's a different sort of disorder, and it's a disorder that... Um, that is imposed upon you. I mean, I don't know if anyone caught the president of Pakistan's interview to The Guardian uh, just recently, where he said, you know, this war is destabilizing Pakistan, the war in Afghanistan is destabilizing Pakistan. What we'd really like is we'd like our own drones so we can drone people with a Pakistani flag on top of them. Um, 
That's a bit of our own disorder, I suppose. Yes. Um, but no, but th- thanks, thanks for mentioning that. that, that that's um, important. Let's go to another question. Here. Uh, sorry, sorry, behind you, and then, and, then, and then it'll come forwards. Antonio Cox, I was a Conservative candidate at the last election. Um, since the election, there's been a Strategic Defence and Security <laughs> Review. We've... I suppose that could have been expected to say which was which parts of our defence capabilities were necessary and which parts were unaffordable luxuries. Do you think in the light of the Libyan conflict, which, as the panel has mentioned, was not foreseen by any strategists, nor was the wider... Uh, or perhaps by, it was foreseen by one. And, and, and the, 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 the lessons that, that will be derived from that, do you think in that light we should reopen the Strategic Defence and Security Review? Or if we don't, how should we take on board the lessons um, once we have seen what they are? Great. Michael. Oh, um, we, we are incrementally uh, looking again at the SDSR, but it's not going to be reopened in any formal sense, if only for political reasons. But sure, I mean, the, the, um, you know, to get to 2015, uh, more resource has to be found or greater cuts have to be found. And to get from 2015 to 2020, we're looking at a, at least a 2% increase in defence expenditure, which is double what we've had over the, in real terms over the last decade. And, and so there's some pretty heroic assumptions built in to getting to the 2020 status that the government has laid out. It's not, almost certainly not going to happen. And does Libya affect it? Um, not at the moment, because the government is, is fond of saying, look, we, even with the SDSR, we can do what we are doing in Libya. But if it gets much more demanding, then the strange really will start to show... And the strains are all, you know, for those of us who talk about these things, the strains are already there. They're not, they're not quite at the surface yet, but it won't take much to bring them through. Mm. Uh, Deborah, do you want to come in on this? Um, yeah, no, I remember I was writing about, um, about they have the, the, the planning round, which um, was supposed to be concluded at the end of March, which is supposed to outline the spending for the next financial year. And before the Libya crisis erupted, um, the MOD was already facing a £1 billion black hole um, that it had yet to fill. And um, because of, uh, as Michael said, for political reasons, they can't reopen the SDSR right now, um, they actually started calling the planning round SDSR 2. Um, and it's actually kind of um, it, it, everything, everything is being, re- is being looked at again because people know they can't afford it. And um, it, suddenly the Libya crisis was thrust upon, um, a, you know, onto Liam Fox's desk. Um, so goodness knows how he's finding the time to make the, the, the numbers match, but I guarantee they don't. So Hugh and then, and then Chris. I, I'd make two very quick points. I mean, one following directly what's been said already, which is the assumption is the SDSR ever finished, uh, and, and in a way it didn't, um, precisely because it was ongoing business and because uh, any of the key decisions that had to be taken, if they could be postponed, were postponed. Um, so one of the problems that, that, that is inherent in our current situation is that actually as much as could be kicked forward into 2015 has been kicked forward into 2015. So there is, as already been made clear, an ongoing review. I I think there are two other things that we probably need to look at for this year, which may have an effect, but it'll be interesting to see how they have an effect, partly because they're all happening entirely out of sequence. Uh, One is what the the Defence Reform Unit, the Levine Group, actually says, 
uh, in terms of how the Ministry of Defence is structured, and one would have thought that would have come first uh, in the sequence in which these things are being done. Um, but whether it will come too late to have any effect is a question in my mind. And the second issue is to do with the um, Chalcot inquiry and whether that really will try to produce some lessons learnt uh, from Iraq uh, as opposed to revisiting uh, once again the issues of 2003-04 because I think uh, the big question for me uh, if we are fighting protracted wars and I hope Libya doesn't come protracted war but of course plenty of people are saying it could and it might uh, but Afghanistan certainly has been is our extraordinary slowness to adapt in the course of a war uh, and to change direction uh, and the structural difficulties we seem to have in developing any sense of flexibility. Part of it may be due to that word strategy, which has already been used quite a bit already. Strategy is not just about looking into the long term, imagining somehow you can manage the future to your own advantage. It is actually dealing with the unforeseen. It is the ability to be flexible and agile, uh, and it is the cast of mind that enables you to do that. Um, it isn't simply crystal ball gazing, and I don't even know if it is primarily crystal ball gazing. Chris, I'm looking forward to this answer. You wrote the last review. <laughs> yeah, I was the author of the 1998 one. Um, uh, the SDSR is a complete shambles. Um, it should be ashamed of itself, I'm afraid. Um, in uh, trying to get around the fiscal deficit, they've actually induced what I, I called in, on, in print, actually, in the Telegraph, a strategic deficit. Um, it's full of pious platitudes, wishful thinking about the future, and frankly, it's naive. Um, the world ain't going to be like that. The strategic assessment of the future is perfunctory. Um, did, should we have foreseen North Africa and Libya? Well, plenty of people were telling the Ministry of Defence it was about to go. Um, and the point, I point out that uh, the campaign in Libya, being really fought as a war on the cheap at the moment, is being fought with today's capability, not the post-SDSR capability. Um, quite a lot of the weapon systems um, that are being used. Typhoon is being retrofitted with something that was booted into the long grass of uh, 2018. Um, it's thoroughly incoherent. Um, and there's another thing actually hanging in the wind as well, and that is the coalition has promised never ever to send our forces in the future into battle unless they're fully equipped, fully trained and fully supported. Uh, I reckon by about 2015 we'll be fitted for a knife fight in Peckham. Um, there aren't going to be many places the government's going to be able to send us on that basis. I have never in my life gone into any war fully equipped, trained or supported, nor did I expect to be, actually. Uh, at the end of the day, you go with what you have and you do the country's business. I'm afraid um, you know, there were too many in inter-service rivalries and in the end the government caved in and gave a little bit of pain to each of the three services. There is no coherence, there is no money and yes, we do need to reopen the SDSR because at the moment the country is being thoroughly let down in its expectations. Chris, thank you very much. Um, let's, go, let's go to question here. And then, sorry, and then you after. Sorry, uh, here on the aisle. Thank you very much. Uh, John Smythe from Engage for Change. Um, it's the Western nations that have taken on the role of uh, the world's policemen and so forth. Do, do the expert panel see a time when, I don't know, the Indians, the Chinese and others, the Russians even, start to emerge uh, as, as part of the sort of national airline metaphor, so to speak? <laughs> Very good question. And, and we we'll go to that. I'd just actually like to bring in Fatima. That what do you think of the Libyan action, uh, which is, after all, uh, imposed, uh, but against a, a dictator who is not light? Um, what I find, uh, you know, there was a very good article in The Independent recently on, on the idea of interfering on the behalf of civilians. 
And, uh, you know, sorry to keep droning on about this, but... (laughs) (laughs) But if we're talking um, about protecting civilians, then we can't really take at face value a country that is killing civilians in other parts of the world, in other theatres of the world. Um, And, and again, it was raised earlier um, by Deborah. If we're talking about, um, again... Uh, wars in which we are morally obliged to act, why, why has nobody acted in Bahrain, for example? Mm. But just on Libya, I'm sorry, I'm actually not Libya, clear. You're for it or you're uh, against, against, against Always it. against the Always against it, fine. Uh, let's, let's go to the others on this very interesting question of whether China and India uh, could and might um, take, take the place. Who'd like to start? I'll do that. And then everyone can make their bids. The way the world's set up economically and politically at the moment relies on an international system of law uh, and custom, um, which operates to the benefit of the Western nations. There's no question about that. Um, both India and China in the future will need to gain some control and guarantee about the distributional systems that get commodities to them and uh, finish goods back to their customers. Uh, at the moment, you have a Chinese navy that is expanding. Um, there is The strategic axis of the world has shifted from the Atlantic during the Cold War now to the Indian Ocean. Uh, the reason for that is most of the world's energy is concentrated in the Gulf. Most of the world's energy routes go through the Indian Ocean. Um, and you're seeing the rise of a blue water navy for one reason only with China. They need to protect their distributional uh, channels to the Gulf, to Africa, and beyond Africa to South America, where 16% of their um, uh, inward investment goes. Now, are they able at the moment to take up that burden? No. Peace at sea is maintained by the United States Navy at the moment. And uh, as I've said, Bora, my wife, will say, you mustn't say this again, but the sea is the physical manifestation of the World Wide Web. And any country that needs to be in globalization, I would say any country needs to be in globalization in the next 10 years, has to guarantee its use of the sea. The Indians and the Chinese have picked up on this. Whether they do it on a competitive or cooperative basis remains to be seen. Uh, Sure as eggs is eggs, if, um, talking of commodities, um, peace does not keep itself at sea. So if nobody does it, there will be anarchy at sea Physical globalization will break down and countries will take what measures they have to to safeguard their interests. They're not ready yet. Deborah? Um, well, just basically, I just think that um, because, well, China and Russia aren't open democracies as an understatement, and that's basically the, the reason why, uh, well, the reason that the UK and the US and the Western allies put forward every time when we've done these actions well not, obviously not Afghanistan but um, uh, you know in the end after WMD didn't turn up in Iraq it was about you know, regime change and Libya it's about um, what's happening uh, you know the, the, the fact that you've got this um, this regime that uh, is crushing uh, what's being seen as you know sort of this popular uprising um, so China and Russia are hardly going to sort of step in to get involved in that so I think you know unless that changes and I can't see their reaction changing. Interesting. Hugh? I, I take issue with a number of things that have been said so far, one of which is the notion that, that the international order is, is collapsing around our ears. Um, it actually seems to me the international order is in not too bad shape, um, uh, particularly when we are trying to do rather more with it um, than has happened in any previous generation. We're actually talking about an international order that's trying to operate at a global level rather than, say, specifically at a European level. Uh, there are currently 49 states... Uh, committed to the war in Afghanistan, which argues for some degree of consensus. 
Um, and um, the UN Security Council resolution does actually support some action in Libya, however much you may feel uh, that uh, it's ambiguous in terms of what it's trying to say. Now, all that seems to me that actually there is rather more of a sense of an international order and the desirability of an international order um, than uh, might otherwise seem to be the case. Of course, a lot of that is vested in maintaining the status quo, which is an inherently difficult attribute of the international order in the first place. But as powers increase in wealth um, and leverage, and China and India are the obvious examples, then they will need to take part in the international order if they're going to benefit from it. Um, and I can certainly see a situation, and, and indeed have talked with, to one or two people quite recently about the possibility of if you do move uh, towards a UN-led rather than a NATO-led solution to Afghanistan, for example, is that the role where you could see in, uh, Muslim peacekeeping forces uh, playing a role more directly rather than having forces that are so clearly identified with the West uh, and with non-Muslim countries. Uh, so it seems to me exactly where the international order can play a part and it is entirely in our interest to encourage China and India to go down those routes. And Michael, do you want to do? Just bri briefly, yeah, it's back to the transition point that I was making before, uh, that um, you know, we always said the 21st century will be the Asian century sooner or later and it is, looks as if it's going to be sooner rather than later. The world economic crisis has the effect of sort of blowing everything into the air. And as it comes down again, it comes down in a different place. So, you know, the world lost about 4% of GDP during the economic crisis. As that 4% comes back, it's coming back more in Asia. It's 10% of trade, same sort of uh, thing. And so the, 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 the dialogue is exactly as Hugh says. Uh, you know, are China and India and the Asian powers going to buy into the system that we invented that's run for our benefit for the last 300 years? And this is a dialogue that goes on all the time, both with institutes, that, that, you know, institute dialogues that I'm involved in, as well as, as government dialogues. And, and the argument is always to the, to the Chinese, when are you guys going to take responsibility that goes with your power? And the Chinese say, we will come into the system when it suits us just the way you did, United States, in the 19th, 20th centuries. We have a domestic issue. We have a domestic growth issue. President Hu is very concerned about domestic growth. When we've sorted that out, we will enter the system, not at a time that suits you, but at a time that suits us and in a way that suits us. And when it comes to the economic crisis, they say, you've got a problem, you're ill, so you want us to take the medicine. No. Um, and say, so we are doing exactly what the United States was doing, but more, more consciously and more honestly, what the US is doing in the 19th century, we're choosing our moment. Michael, thank you. We're going to go here and then there, and then over to the side. Uh, Tom Allow of the eponymous radio show on FM out of Hammersmith in London. Uh, Stay City, if you don't mind. I just wanted to ask a question about the media and the use of, uh, or the corruption of the English language, which for those of us old enough to remember Good Morning Vietnam and uh, where these words originally came from, like mission creep, collateral damage, etc., etc., now all of a sudden we have humanitarian weapons drops, which uh, has just been invented. Although we must remember, this isn't a war, it's merely a squirmish. So isn't it marvellous to invent a, a word like that? But does this mean that we're soon going to be have having humanitarian weapons of mass salvation? Um, how far can this go without somebody telling us the truth and treating the electorate as if they're not small children um, and actually saying what, what the government is aiming to do without trying to cover it up with this double-talk, triple-talk and absolute nonsense? I don't know who that's aimed at. I suppose the media, yeah, the in media, general. which is plural. Um, I, I'm tempted to take that as a, as a rhetorical point. But just, Deborah, quickly, would you like to say something about the language of war? Um, yeah. Well, I've never caused. I've never, I've never called one of the uh, tomahawk missiles 
you know, a weapon of humanitarian relief. Um, so I don't know where you got that from. Um, He's in PR. Well, the, the, the you know, governments choose their words as they like to, and the, the media, at least the Times, likes to cut through that and say it as it is. And I, I don't think that's really changed much. I think we still try and do our job in that sense. I think it's stretching a point to call the government the media. But, um, but anyway, right. I understand the point you're making. Right, we're going to have two more quickly, and I'm going to take them together. Uh, one here. Yeah, and then. But Bronwyn, maybe I could just oh, jump in to defend. I mean, because I, I think you, your your point is incredibly valid. When when you listen to military speak in the media, w- what is a possible child? You know, two possible children. Um, why is everyone a so-called militant? Um, or, or if you're not a militant, you're a moderate. Maybe I'm immoderate, you know. <laughs> uh, but you're either one or the other. And I think the media plays a very insidious game. And and you have this Orwellian double speak all the time, at least it seems that way those of us watching it from the outside Can I just come in here, Bronwyn? Um, um, Talking from the practitioner's point of view um, over the last ten years it's uh, been accepted wisdom that actually uh, communications and influence it's now called is a command function Uh, you should dominate, as a a commander you should dominate both the real and the virtual battle space in practice that doesn't happen because between you and the media there is a phalanx of communications experts who determine, and everybody who works in the Ministry of Defence here, and I see a few at the back, um, know that they cannot say what they think at this meeting or in any other meeting. Um, and the military speak of which everybody compl- uh, complains normally is a straightforward, honest military officer trying to say something significant but knowing he can't use certain words and being told he can't. So- could I, could I ask a question then? So what, when Obama said that they were not, America was not at war with Libya, but that they were engaging in kinetic military action, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, can I say something? Because I was just thinking the word kinetic when you're talking about it now. It is quite funny the way that um, the, like the, the military and the government uses these kind of like soft words to describe what is actually pretty brutal. Like kinetic means killing people or killing things or doing something combative and operational. Um, I remember in Iraq, they used to we used to all talk about AFES, and we're like, you know, what's an AFE? Mm. And an AFE is an anti-Iraqi force, um, <laughs> so basically an insurgent. Um, and it kind of like it dehumanizes what is actually um, a quite a, a distasteful thing, in order, I guess, for the public um, not to realise what's going on. But obviously, that's when the media does step in, and we do try to perform a, fu- a function of of um, de-jargonizing words like kinetic and eighth and making them into killing people well there are two points there I mean um, <laughs> each, each um, sort of discipline talks in its own argot if we talked uh, jack speak which is the language we talk at sea we wouldn't be able to have a sensible conversation right now because every sailor understands it every marine affects to understand it um, um, in as much as they understand anything boys but there we go um, um, but at the end of the day um, Part of the reason for that, Deborah, is that people are engaged in things they'd rather not do, actually, in, in the normal run of things. And you have to dress up um, what you do in a, bit, a, bit of, a little bit of illusion. It's the same as you'll find some really dark humour associated with combat operations. Why? Because it's a psychologically very disturbing thing to do. Uh, so you, you've got to accept that you are actually mandating servicemen to go out and do things that you don't want to do yourself. Now, if they shroud that for their own reasons in some of this argot, uh, I'm afraid that vocabulary is part of the process. Uh, It's not designed to mislead. It's designed to, if you like, soften the effect on the the people doing it as well. 
that's the point. The and, and also, some actually, thank you, very stimulating point. Michael, you've got your just, you've got no, the, the opposite is also true. Um, just as the military speak in euphemisms, the literary world speaks in military. They say that, that one writer shoots the other writer's argument down in flames. They yeah. say they beat them up, they went for them, they destroyed them. Uh, p- people in the, in the literary and artistic worlds use very aggressive metaphors. People in the worlds of aggression use very literary metaphors. <laughs> can, I, can I just say, I, I think, although all this is entirely true, not in the Royal Marines. We're actually getting away from the point, which is why are we not spoken to honestly in terms of what is going on and motivation? And I think the, uh, Libya is exact, absolutely the case in point. Is Britain involved because there is a humanitarian responsibility to be involved, the responsibility to protect and all the rest of it, or is it involved because it needs to honour the alliance with France having just done the deal? Um, and that issue simply isn't being addressed, as far as I can see, by anybody. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for the Prime Minister to stand up and say, we've got to stick by France just having, having had an alliance with France, if that is where France has to go, because this is a vital interest for France. I don't know if that is a factor. I have no idea. Mike may know much better than I do. But the point is that, that, that we, we should have, I would have thought, and we could be treated as responsible enough to have a sensible discussion about that. We're coming towards the end. I'm going to take three together and then ask the, para, uh, the, the panel uh, very unfairly for uh, extra succinct answers to those, those three. Hello, I'm Deborah Hall. Um, yes, it was Martin Bell, former war defence correspondent, um, who said that politicians have never felt the ground shake under their boots in an artillery barrage. They haven't heard the special sound that a bullet makes when it parts the air above their head. If only they had, we wouldn't be where we are today. And I wonder what the panel thought about that. And also, um, it was interesting, we had somebody um, from the film world behind us. Uh, If you've seen the film In the Valley of Elah, which I highly recommend for anyone in the room, uh, I'm sure you're interested in that subject or you wouldn't be here tonight. Um, It's a fantastic film and uh, it looks at mental health issues and in particular in relation to an, an actual um, case uh, that, um, of, a, of a young serviceman who came back from war in Iraq um, with mental problems. And the, the film asks very serious questions about whether or not we can afford the mental health issues that our service people are coming back with. And can we afford that? So, two thoughts there. Very, very interesting point. There was one at the side here. Hello, it's Joy Lodico from the Evening Standard. Um, first of all, I wanted to observe that when I first read the title of this, I immediately imagined uh, soldiers walking through the desert with Louis Vuitton-designed rucksacks on their feet. Um, it's not a gay pride branch, is it? What's that? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> what, I, what I actually wanted to ask was, Chris has already reframed the question as peace and affordable luxury. Um, and I wanted to sort of turn it around again and say, can we actually afford not to go to war? Could we move to a position that, that the BRICS have? That could, could we go to a UN Security Council and say, actually, we're going to abstain on this? What would happen to Britain if we decided to actually sort of downgrade our position uh, in terms of world politics and say, actually, we can't, really can't afford this. Can we stand on the sidelines? Another excellent one. And finally, I'm Pfizer. I'm a Pakistani. I'm an artist. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering that the, the title is... Uh, war is expensive but it was really interesting um, with Deborah the way um, she described her time in Libya and although it was sort of a very objective account of, of, the, of the events she did throw in the failings of the dictator and I'm just wondering that um, the efficiency um, that the West shows in taking actions in certain parts of the world especially the Middle East compared to let's say if you think of Rwanda or other genocides that happen around the world what underpins that efficiency I mean Oil seems to always, as you said, sits on the periphery of it. Or, I mean, is it really about human rights? 
And I think in the living memory, if you, if you also think of General Zia, how he was the kind of the best buddy, the worst dictator Pakistan seen uh, of West, but his his failings were never reported or always sugarcoated, or you know he was best friend with Reagan. I'm just very fascinated by the efficiency with certain actions are taken, and then NATO just doesn't get somewhere in time, you know, where it's probably needed more if it's in the name of humanity. So you know that really fascinates me. Great, three excellent points. I'm going to ask the panel, I'm afraid, to be incredibly brief. Um, starting on this side, Hugh, and going uh, along. Well, not all. Um, first of all, on politicians and war, Churchill, when the First World War broke out, wrote to Clemmy and said, you know, the world's heading for disaster. Uh, I'm wonderfully excited, uh, and it's really great to be alive right now. Uh, I've paraphrased him. But the point essentially is that there doesn't seem to be any necessary relationship between past military experience and where you stand on this issue. Um, uh, of course, the majority of our politicians in the United Kingdom now, and indeed in the, most in the United States, have no military experience. But that is nothing new. Uh, in terms of where politicians have tended to be. Uh, they, so, so I wouldn't see that. I don't see it's a requirement of a politician to have had military experience. And equally, it could be said, just as there are politicians who really support war, uh, there are certainly plenty of those in uniform, however much they uh, may say they dislike war, who actually quite welcome it from time to time. Um, and I would go on further and say let us not exaggerate the mental health problems that come out of war um, most of, let's not say there aren't serious mental health problems that arise out of war um, but uh, this is a problem which is getting magnified in the telling uh, rather than sensibly managed. Um, why for example are there more problems in the United States than there are in the United Kingdom and, and uh, refer you to some of the work that the King's College uh, military uh, health uh, centre has, has, has done all this, which suggests that there may well be a self-fulfilling expectation about a great deal of this. Mm. Hugh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to stop mm. you there so we move on. Fatima. I, I might just answer Pfizer's question really quickly with um, the fact that Pakistan's four military dictators, all four of them, have received... Um, economic, political um, support and friendship, not just from the United States, but also from Great Britain. Um, every one of those dictators, not just General Zia, but also most recently Musharraf. Um, it seems that supporting dictators is very affordable and very expedient for most Western countries. And most recently, Joe Biden you know, came on the record and said about Mubarak, well, I wouldn't really call him a dictator. What would you call him then, begs the question. It's <laughs> great. Michael. Okay, on a very good question here. Does, does Britain have to be a, a world power? The argument that the government makes and the informed elite makes is always that, well, we have, we're a globalised power, we have globalised interests, we're good at the globalisation game, etc., etc. Therefore, we have global commitments. Rubbish. We don't. We don't have to. We choose to. We could take what well, I, I was upset the Swedes when I said this. We could take the Sweden option. We could just be comfortable. We could be rich and prosperous and comfortable and not think we have global commitments that we have to, we have to fulfil in a military way. We choose to, to pay our dues to this system, not by paying money the way the Japanese do or the Germans do, but we choose by sending our forces around the world to annoy people. That's a choice. We do that by choice. You don't have to. On the mental health issue, um, just to re reinforce what Hugh said, yeah, don't overestimate it. The, the best studies that we have show that levels of mental health in British soldiers coming back from the Middle East are very low, one and a half to two percent, as opposed to ten and twelve percent in the United States. But their levels of alcoholism are uniquely high, yeah. higher than, than in, in our society in general. They have an alcohol problem in the army, and they now know it. They don't have a mental health. Well, they don't have a mental health problem as such. They have an alcohol problem, and all the things that go with that, like wife beating and all the rest of it. Michael, thank you. Deborah. Um, uh, making it a bit broader, apart from mental health and the affordability of that, is 
um, is the fact there's so many injured personnel. I mean, the, the way that the medical expertise now means that people that probably would have died years ago are now alive but with horrific injuries. And the question has to be asked, can we afford to keep them um, in, in a comfortable uh, you know, uh, way of life for the rest of their life once people's attention is no longer um, swept up in Afghanistan and, and Libya and Iraq? And that, that is a real, a real concern. Um, on the, what happens to the UK if we, don't, um, if we downgrade our, uh, our global role? Um, I remember talking about this before when the SDSR was going on. And it, you know, people do think that we're obviously batting, uh, you know, punching above our weight. And, but it's kind of... You know, bring the UK being such a, a, a big global power, being a member of the Security Council, being a leading member in the EU, it all feeds into our economy. It makes us, it makes the UK strong. And if we can be strong, then um, we should do what we can to, to keep that going, even if it is slightly um, unaf- unaffordable. Right, and Chris. Very quickly, politicians always been a nuisance on the battlefield. Um, <laughs> the last thing I would want is a politician near me uh, in battle. Uh, the trouble is, as Hugh says, they get to like it, and almost every politician I've met um, curses himself every morning for not having been a soldier, as, as uh, Shakespeare said in Othello. Um, as for mental health problems, you're absolutely right, it does occur. It happens in every war. We have to quantify that. And in fact, I'm amazed I've turned out normal, in fact. So there we go. It's, um, um, United Nations, uh, look at the shambles NATO is making of trying to agree how to conduct a war. Um, you don't conduct a war on the basis of committee, I'm afraid. Uh, United Nations magnify that immensely. Bear in mind it was designed for 1948 and not 2011. We're going nowhere with that at the moment. Why do we need to stick in there? Um, it's what Deborah said. If you want a future, you need to be involved in globalisation. If you want to be involved in globalisation, you have to be out there. We actually have 8 million people abroad. Uh, British people who have to be protected, pulled out of places and things like that. Um, Pfizer, your point is, uh, I'm afraid, a confusion of uh, values and interests. We'd like to pursue our values, but we also have political interests in the world. There are vital strategic parts of the world that Britain, America, has to keep stable if its own country, if their own countries are to remain uh, stable. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's what Lyndon Johnson said, um, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's actually our son of a bitch as well. And I'd like to conclude with one quotation again from Churchill. He said, war, which used to be cruel and magnificent, has now become cruel and squalid. It's all the fault of democracy and science. From the moment that either of these meddlers or muddlers were allowed to take part in actual fighting, the doom of war was sealed. We now have entire populations pitted against each other in brutish mutual extermination. And only a set of bleary-eyed clerks to add up the butcher's bill. From the moment that democracy was admitted to or forced itself upon the battlefield, war ceased to be a gentleman's sport. That's great. Finally, may I just ask everyone, panel included, on your own personal definition of necessary, for Britain at this point, is military action in Libya necessary? Hands up, yes. And no. You're voting. Right. Thank you very much for that. That, that is, uh, that, that is um, uh, solidly no, but not, but, but not without our significant um, pockets, and I wish we had more time for uh, de- debating that. Can you join me in thanking our excellent panel, and thank you very much indeed. Thank you.